0: you are listening to the new street x podcast where we interview people who understand the intersection of physical and digital collectibles we're entering an exciting world in the collectible space that involves things like sneakers nfts trading cards fashion sports pop culture and much much more and these things are coming together so we're here to talk to people that understand that people that are really building the future of collectibles around the world Thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Street X podcast. I'm excited to have here today a special guest, Tone Stakes. He's the founder of GameUse Tone, but he's also an industry expert across trading card manufacturing, GameUse memorabilia. He's previously at Fanatics, Panini, and just works at a lot of different companies and projects across sports and collectibles. So, Tone, thanks so much for being here, man. I really want to welcome you to the podcast.
1: Ah, Tony, man, I'm glad to be here. I dig what you guys are doing, man. I'm I'm excited to talk with you. So thank you for having me on. Oh, for sure, man. Thank you. I
0: mean, you do. You've done a lot of things. I admire that. You're doing a lot of interesting stuff right now. But let's say, blank slate. I just met you on the street and I said, hey, Tone, nice to meet you. How do you describe like what you do, what you're working on and like where did you come from and who is Tone Stakes today?
1: Man, I, I would like to think that I plan this all out, but it's all a lot of it's happened just by circumstance. You know, you 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 start to build a path and then you meet people and then they helped you into get into other roles. But I mean, truthfully, I think that I currently I have spent a lot of time in the licensed and collectibles space for sporting, you know, memorabilia, trading cards. I've worked at three of the large trading card manufacturers in, on the planet, you know, Upper Deck, Fanatics, and Panini America. You know, it's been it's been just a fun journey through connections to get here. I then started my own game used business where I did partnerships with NBA players. We had about thirty NBA players at the peak of it, and we've you know we sell their game used sneakers. You know, it's one of the things that they actually own on the court. They don't own their jerseys or shorts or items like that. The sneakers they own, so we've been able to kind of build a business there. I just love being around sports any way I could, and so it's it's been a fun journey this far. Awesome.
0: Now, how about we double down on game use tone to begin with? So this company, you know, working with NBA players, dealing with their sneakers. So maybe take a step back. How how did the idea come about? How did you get involved in this? And what how does the company work exactly?
1: Yeah. So it it actually started. I was at Panini America and we were doing an autograph signing with Kevin Durant and his partner Rich Kleiman. And so we're sitting there with Kevin, and Kevin's like, you know, just trying to understand the industry. And he's asking about could I make my own trading cards? And I was like, well, you know, you need licensing rights from the teams. And, you know, and so we're explaining through all these processes. What about autograph memorabilia? Oh man, you need distribution. So he's like, well, I'll just sell my jerseys. You know, he's just, he's just talking business. Right. And I'm like, well, the team owns your jerseys. He's like, man. And I was like, well, technically your sneakers you own until, you know, Nike or whoever starts asking for them back. And he was like, yeah, yeah, we should be able to do that. Right. Do our sneakers. And, and truthfully, that's how the business started. It just started with an idea from an athlete who, you know, I mean, these, these athletes, they make great money, but they're constantly being their, their name and likeness, their NIL, if you will, because that's kind of what the hot button words are right now. Their NILs are being used all the time for these partners to make a lot of money. And a lot of times the athletes don't make any money off of it. You know, We're seeing it now with college and amateur status where they can start making their own money in certain states. And it's, it's been going on for a long time that these professional athletes are like, yeah, no, I, I get paid a great salary. I appreciate it. Great marketing deals, and endorsement deals, but there are other areas that are still being utilized and I'm not being compensated for them. So, uh, you know, that's how the business started. And again, it grew to, it grew to about 30 players. We've streamlined it down a lot just because, you know, I thought when I started, I thought that the, the business could hold and there was collectors looking for every single player in professional sports. And just being a fan, I think if you've made it to professional sports, you're you're a legend by itself. Whether you're the last guy on the bench, you're still a legend because you're a professional athlete. And what we found was that there is a market for for all athletes, but to be able to sell multiples and and you know, to kind of build it out, we had to really focus on kind of the elite top-tier players where that it became a mutually beneficial partnership on all sides.
0: So so walk me through like like let's say Kevin Durant, you know, I would imagine. Every what every single game he plays, you, you take his sneakers after. Maybe not every single one, but and then you say, okay, okay, thanks so much, KD. You played that game last week. Passes it on to you, and then you put it like up for for auction. And then would would that only work? Like you're saying with let's say KD level players. What if someone who's like on the bench of another team says, hey, Tone, like I've got an active like sort of fan base. I think I could like give you my sneakers as well. Is is that like how it works?
1: Yeah. So. So, I mean, you know, uh, as far as how often they switch them out, certain players will switch them out every game, sometimes at half. Some players are very superstitious, so they will, you know, they have a first half, it doesn't go well, they'll switch them out. I've seen guys switch them out between quarters, too, so, I mean, that's possible. But a guy like KD, he'd wear them usually for eight to ten games. KD is a guy that, it seems like, likes to get comfortable in his shoes, you know. Even though these shoes, and I tell these people, and they don't believe it, but, when Nike or Adidas or whoever sends these guys shoes, they're like a sock. You put it on, it's made specifically for you ready to go. Like you, you don't have to break it in like we do when we buy them at, you know, at at sneaker stores, right? But so these guys, they put them on. And then again, certain guys like to wear them you know, throughout multiple games, sometimes one game. But usually what we do is we try to get as many of them we can. We try not to overload the market. We have to be very mindful of saturating the market, especially players at an elite level you know, they start at $2,000, $2,500. So it's not that every common fan can afford those. So again, you have, you start to limit the pool. So you try to be very mindful of trying to get better sneakers, better games, that type of stuff. And then we do, we don't, we don't do a whole lot of public auctions. We will occasionally work with some of the auction partners when it makes sense. But a lot of times we have built relationships with a lot of collectors around the globe. We kind of know who the, eight or 10 people are that would be interested in each pair of sneakers. And then we reach out to them and figure out, you know, just from previous sales, what those value is on each of those sneakers and find the right buyers for each of them. This is, this is
0: fascinating because I also think about the intricacies of like licensing and ownership, right? So you're saying like, if, if KD is wearing a jersey, he doesn't necessarily have the ability to pass it on to you to sell. And but but Nike and Adidas, if, if, if he's wearing, I don't know, a pair of Jordans, like they don't care versus whatever the the team cares about or like sponsors or like let's say i don't know i'm just you know taking the the logic here to to another extent like i know his socks for example or like his undershirts or whatever like how does like licensing of a player's apparel and attire work at at a a high level
1: because that that's just like interesting to me in terms of what's commercially allowed or not yeah so the if the team provides it right if the team provides the jersey the shorts those elements, the teams do provide the socks, but I don't think at this point there's a, a significant value in the socks. I mean, I'm sure there's collectors somewhere that would love socks. It's not a space I work in, but because the, 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 athletes are actually, you know, they bring the sneakers. Now, obviously Nike, Adidas, Jordan, Under Armour, whoever will send those sneakers to the athlete, but the athlete technically owns those sneakers. The athlete then gets to choose whether that individual decides to wear those sneakers in practice or games or just walking around in the neighborhood or whatever the setup is. And at this point, again, the the manufacturers, once they provide the the sneakers the to the athletes, they're not asking for them back because the value for Nike, Adidas, whoever, is the player wearing those sneakers on the court or even around town, wherever to get that visibility that they're connected. KD does have a partnership with Nike. Um, he has his own sneakers. Uh, and, and for full clarity... We, we actually, we, the, the idea came from KD. We only sold one pair of KD sneakers ever. So because when, when the partnership kind of came about, he got injured, we kind of moved on and we're working some other areas. It just happens to be his business. I'm sure he probably should deserve some portion of our business <laughs> equity, but, but we don't, we have not sold his sneakers. So I want to be clear. He's not, he's not one of the individuals we actually have selling sneakers for. But they, so in KD's case, he, he has his own sneaker from Nike. So they probably send him other sneakers to wear off the court. But on the court, they definitely want him wearing his specialty KD sneaker because they look to, you know, individuals, young kids going into the stores, the sneaker stores and buying his specific sneakers. And, and when you started this company, did you think, I mean, to me, it
0: sounds straightforward and obvious that someone would want a pair of these shoes. Like, I mean, people still buy for lots, like high amounts of money. Let's say shoes worn by Jordan in the '80s, or I'm sure shoes worn by like I know Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, even way back before that. It is just like another sort of subcategory of memorabilia. But when you set out to create this company, did you think, okay, there's even more demand that's unmet for, let's say, modern players? Because because even prior to Game Used Tone, and I know like you know you're not the only person in the world who, who's doing this. Was there an active market for sneaker memorabilia? Or do you think that's growing? And do you think that could expand to, let's say, could you be doing this for NCAA athletes? Are you also doing this with like NFL players, NHL players, you know, is is there, how like, I guess at the inception of the business, was it obvious to you that the demand was there and there's more business that come out of it? And then looking forward, do you think that it could expand across, you know, any sport theoretically that has a fan base?
1: Yeah, I think as when we started talking about it and figuring out if this was a business model, right? We looked out into the landscape to see what else was out there. And now, companies, you know, companies like with the company I worked with when I was at Panini, they would do trading card autograph deals or memorabilia autograph deals. And they would include in the deal, oh, this many amount of game used sneakers or whatever. And then what they would do is cut them up and put them into cards. So they weren't, they weren't always selling them, they were utilizing them for product. But what I saw from being at Panini, having these connections with athletes, understanding this, this market, was that it was kind of being untapped. There were collectors. The sneaker, the you know, the the, the sneakerhead community was really growing, right? It was at the time where, like, the, the term sneakerhead was, like, becoming a thing, right? People wanted to be sneakerheads. So I saw, to me, it was a perfect intersection of You know the best. These top athletes get the best sneakers. Like they get the the player. You know the PE's, what they call player exclusives. Some people call them player editions. But these are like the best of the best sneakers. They they don't make them. You know in retail, so they have rare colorways. They've got unique elements to them that only the athletes have. So I was like, if you're a sneakerhead and you want the rarest sneakers, these athletes have these because Nike and Adidas and all these guys want these guys to show these amazing sneakers and these these collaborations that are happening. I thought this is perfect. This is a perfect market for this. I have seen there's there is definitely interest in other sports amongst, you know, cleats for football and baseball. I've even seen it for skates for, for NHL, right, for hockey. But the problem, I, the thing I've always seen is I don't know those buyers. I know the basketball buyers, that space I know inside and out. I know the majority of the elite buyers globally because I've done this enough. So I think it wouldn't be hard for me to get deeper into baseball or football, but I just haven't expanded that because for a couple of things, one is, you know, I think that the sneakers are very specific to basketball. You know, the guys that a sneaker is a very easy thing to connect to a fan because fans wear sneakers. Fans don't usually walk around and wear cleats around the neighborhood. So it's it's a little bit harder of a connect, but but I totally did. Right from the get-go, I thought this is a large market, and, I, and I'll tell you, I presented it to the team at Panini. I was like, "Hey, let me run the game used business. You know, let me start this." And at the time, you know, they were doing very, very well, and as they continue to do in the trading card market, and so they thought, "Well, it's it's a it would be a good business, but it's a small business compared to what we're doing." You know, I didn't realize within the first you know year I was going to do a million dollars in sales. You know, I thought it was going to be. 100 grand 150 grand I was gonna make you know 30 50 grand or something and that was gonna be my business but it actually did really really well I got to build out into the community and really see that this was a much larger market than I even thought and that there were people that had these amazing collections I mean man the people that I've sold to the collections they're museum quality collections like I mean you know I've been to the basketball hall of fame numerous times some of these collections would make the basketball Hall of Fame look like you know somebody's intern like small little collection. I mean, the, there's there's collectors out there that have ama- just impressive, and they they want the best of the best. So they want they don't want you know Katie's you know game when he scores twenty five. They want Katie's you know finals winning championship sneakers and or all star game sneakers or you know the elite of the elite items. And that's that of course because of the uniqueness of it, they pay premiums for those items because. They want to make sure they have those in their collection.
0: Now, this is, this is so interesting because I see that there are a lot of opportunities to expand and grow. Like what would your ambition be for where the company, where you'd like it to be in in the future? Like, I don't know. Would you expand to other products or sports or you just want to keep growing? What's, what's the ambition there?
1: Yeah, I think, I think in the game news space, I think you need to, a couple things, you know, there's still a stigma with athletes about selling their sneakers, right? The, it. it a long time ago, when signatures first were like a, a thing, when athletes were being asked to sign their signatures for trading cards, it was kind of like a stigma that like oh I give away my autograph at, at games and stuff so I don't want to be paid for it right It was like it was almost like looked down upon. That's kind of the current perspective for the game use space, right I think a lot of the athletes are like well I make great money like I shouldn't be looking to do additional elements to to make money like selling these sneakers. So I think that that part has to be changed. I think the perspective on that has to be changed. I think to be able to do that, you know, we have to make a little more public when these, you know, and when these athletes are looking to sell their items. Because the reality is the athlete connected to the sneaker is what makes the sneaker, you know, valuable. But if it's the athlete actually selling them, it even makes it more valuable because you're getting it directly from the athlete. I'm just the broker, right? I'm just the guy in the middle helping to make the transaction work through all the different features. But I think that the athlete themselves being connected to it would actually make this in this this whole community and this whole market a lot larger. So I think there just has to be some of those elements. And I, I really, really love the possibility of how NFTs can play into this, right? We, I, you know, we, we, I mentioned before this our conversation is the idea of the smart contract. To have something where, for example, I don't work with Michael Jordan, but if I did and Michael Jordan for all the items he's ever, all his game used items, all those elements, if he was able to get a royalty on it every time it's sold, because he was the guy that gave away a lot of stuff. A lot of guys did. Kobe, same thing, gave away a lot of stuff, didn't realize the value, right? And so what happens is if they were connected to those items and they could not only leave their family when they pass away the money that they've made in business and all these elements. But also could have a long term, you know, for in perpetuity, these royalties going through into this trust or whatever to help pay their great 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 grandkids. Every time it resells, every time it goes through that system, I mean that that to me is a business that I think is going to be once it happens, not not if but when, when it happens, it's going to be a, a massive shift in the game use space. and and I really think that. It's going to happen a lot sooner than than you know than, than people may project. It's not years down the road. I mean, it's months. It's maybe a year at best, you know. But this this connection of bringing in this NFT market and the, the NFT you could utilize to kind of show the item if you could get you know NBA video or NFL films on part of it, and you could actually show the actual you know it being used in the game would be phenomenal. I know that's a whole nother level of licensing that that everybody wants their piece. But I really think there's elements of it that that will be what really puts this industry in the next block. And I really think it will be something that happens very soon.
0: Matt, I have so many questions and angles I want to go down from that. But I'm just thinking to myself, would, I guess like one of the things I'm seeing at like a macro level trend, right, is if you look at things like NIL and if you look at things like even the way you just described Katie asking the question about what's available as a commercial opportunity versus maybe 20, 30 years, even if you look back in the history of the NBA, right? Like the 70s, 60s, it was just less commercial. There was, there was less commercial mindedness perhaps in the athletes themselves and the league itself. And each year that's gone by, partially you could attribute this to, I don't know, just like the economy in general, the culture, Air Jordan, George David Stern. The NBA has just become one of the most like forward-thinking creative leagues to think about monetization. I guess from an athlete perspective, Nowadays, you see people like I, I would imagine. Actually, let me know if this is correct assumption. But with a college, an NCAA basketball player these days, or a rookie in the NBA these days, my impression is that these people are more aware of opportunities to like monetize and commercialize than their counterparts from like the 80s or 90s. Is that a fair assumption? And do you think that will continue? Because if it does continue, then maybe like all those opportunities, like you just described will happen naturally because the next generation will be even more savvy maybe the next generation of of players will be the ones creating their own nfts like 4 years from now so is that a is that an accurate trend and why do you think that is
1: yeah i'll tell you man when i was a kid i was such a fan of just sports right and the older i got the more i appreciated the business of sports and now now i personally am a fan of the business of sports and when i look at these things you know when you when you when you're super super close Into it, you think, oh yeah, you know, know, these teams are trying to put the best players out there. They're trying to do, you know, what's best for the fan base. And when you look at it, when you pull back and you look at it from a business perspective, that's not always the right stance, right? And I think these athletes, I think there's a lot more visibility. First off, these athletes are not just athletes anymore. They are, they are, they are businessmen. They are businessmen who play the business of basketball or the business of baseball or football or whatever. They now realize even though they were a kid playing a kid's game, when they get to the professional level, or minor leagues or, or you know, or, or the pro leagues, they are in a business. And so I think what we have really benefited from is over the last, man, 50 years or so, when free agency became a thing, right? With what was a catfish hunter and Spencer Haywood and these guys, when free agency became something, they realized they had value and they could then pick and choose how their value was utilized. That had opened the door, I believe, to really looking at other opportunities, right? We're like, okay, well, how come this car dealership wants me to come and do this thing? Oh, because when I'm there, more people are going to come and there's a better chance of them to sell more cars. So because of that, those started to open up these doors. And now these individuals who, again, make great money, right? But then they, when they have that money, they have to determine how do they invest that. What do they put that into? How do they, what, What's best for their business? Where do they start to look into other ways to use their money to make them money? And because of that, they have to be a lot more intelligent in the business world. And so, you know, a lot of these top athletes, they're not going through communications. You know, they're not doing that for schools. They're going through, I want to go through business. You know, I'm, I'm going through, and some of these guys go back and get MBAs. There, there's this thing at Harvard and Stanford that these classes are going to where these athletes can go there in the off season and learn from. And the reason why they're going there is because they understand networking, they're building connections, and they're understanding where there's other areas for them to build this business. The reality is these athletes now realize, yes, they may have enough money when they retire at 33 or 35 to get through the rest of their days. They may. But since they have that ability now, why not build that network? Why not invest in those areas to build out so that when they're 60, they're not worried about what's left in the bank account? they're making money for their kids and their grandkids. I think I think these athletes are it's it's becoming more and more aware or we are becoming as fans more and more aware that these are businessmen that just happen to play sports, but they're businessmen and then a lot of them are are doing it on levels that I think the athletes from the 80s and 90s wish they would have spent more time doing. You know, we can we can talk about how social media has changed that and been able to tap in directly into your fan base which again Magic Johnson couldn't do at that time, right? These guys that if they could have, the, va- the the value of their brand would have been even infinitely higher if Magic Johnson could have talked to everybody that was a fan of Magic across the globe. But now LeBron James can do that. He can connect his own base. And that's why he's got 10 different businesses that are utilizing fan you know fans to build out their businesses because he realizes I'm the brand. Not Cleveland, not Miami, not L.A., I'm the brand and how do I build my brand out long term?
0: And and you see this real like shift, because I mean I guess this is another angle we could go down for a while, but like you see this shift between loyalty coming to a player level rather than a team level or city level, which still matters, of course. But like I know like R- Ronaldo, for example, has played for like five different teams across like five different like countries: Portugal, Spain, Italy, England, and now Saudi Arabia. And you know, there are probably many, and, and undoubtedly, there are millions, perhaps, of people that probably hadn't watched a Saudi Arabian soccer game at all. But now that Ronaldo's playing for one of those teams, like, that has lift. I remember when he signed for Juventus years ago, they were saying that, like, I think within the first week, they sold tens of millions of new jerseys from Juventus purely because Ronaldo did, did that move. So to me, it's this interesting shift between team level to athlete level. And if you think about that, it's kind of like, in a way fragmentation or decentralization because there are obviously more athletes than there are teams so if every single athlete on like an nba team or soccer team or nfl team starts becoming his or her own brand then that allows them to be like there's a more like businesses sprouting out that aren't reliant purely on just the team doing a good job as a business
1: man I, i again i think of a couple different things the first thing is i think it's brilliant on both sides because for ronaldo He's building out his fan base across multiple regions. He is now becoming, you know, he's, a, he's obviously a global brand, but now he's building out emotional connections to regions that he probably wasn't tapping into before. Then I think about from the team side, right? Again, the business of sports, each of those teams, there's a peak period where that they've maximized their return on their investment in Ronaldo, right? He plays somewhere 20 years, the first 12, 13 years, whatever, they're getting a lot out of him. After a while, they're looking for the next guy, right? And so Again if he stays there 20 years the last six eight years or so they're not getting as much out of him from a from a brand perspective like they would like to so again I look at it like if these teams are saying hey look we're gonna sign these guys for 10 years or whatever but we're really gonna have them for three or four years then trade them off or sell them off or however that works they decide that then now their brand now they're looking for the next connection and they're they've, they've, they've got Ronaldo Ronaldo will always be in their history you know I think about this you know going back to basketball I think about LeBron James, he was, he will always, always, always have the history in Cleveland. He doesn't need to go back to Cleveland to be 20 years there for them to appreciate him. They already appreciate him. He's a, he's a, he's a, he will always forever have legendary status in Cleveland. Right. And so I think it's, again, looking at the business of the sport, the brand himself, the athlete has to make the best decisions to expand their, their reach. And the team itself has to look at, okay, how do we, bring in additional athletes. That's why you see a lot of these athletes from different, especially in, in the NBA. You see re- athletes from all over the world playing, you know? Obviously, we, we see a lot with, with China when Yao Ming came in and, 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 you know, and a lot of the athletes that came out about because of that. But now you're seeing all throughout Africa, all throughout parts of Asia, all throughout parts of Europe. I mean, the, the reach of the NBA, why it is a global sport is because they are highlighting, hey, if you create you know, in Slovenia, if you create a phenomenal athlete, we will bring him into the NBA. He can be a star, and then Slovenia gets country pride because of you know the because of Luka Doncic, right? And so I think that what happens is the other sports yet baseball baseball has done it with you know with Central America and certain parts of obviously Japan and China, but it but it's still getting that reach, right? I think that you see it from the business side where. When they're when they're outreaching and getting these athletes from different areas, they're building fan bases in those regions. And that's how I look at that idea of Ronaldo going to Saudi Arabia. I don't know much about if that league is an elite league or not. It doesn't matter. What does matter is an elite player went to this league and is going to expand the visibility, the partnerships, all of whatever they paid him, he still earned them a lot more than that just because of what he's gonna do for that region in the sport. And and truthfully, again, I think it's that's why these guys are business. That's why these all these athletes, even you know the WNBA athletes, these professional women's softball players, they are realizing they are business people, not just athletes.
0: Well, an- another interesting element of like the sports slash collectible business landscape that I'd love to tap into your knowledge and background on is is cards. You know, we spent we've talked about like sneakers. We talked about a bit about the macro stuff. But what's interesting to me, well, out of many things, is that, you know, you've worked at Panini and Upper Deck, two of like the sort of like traditional, classic, very well-respected, you know, card companies. But you've also worked at Fanatics, which in the last few years has become, in a way, a card company. And what I thought was interesting that kind of ties to that last point is that one of the smart moves that Fanatics made was in their fundraising, well, in their last investment round, or at least I think the one in 2021 they had investment from all the players associations. So there was a vested interest in NBA players, NFL players, et cetera, and seeing Fanatics succeed, which to my knowledge was not like, I mean, the, the player associations weren't investors in Panini or Upper Deck, for example, right? So that was like an interesting move by Fanatics to get the right stakeholders and incentives aligned. So before we dive into like the specifics of how that might've changed things, first off, i love to know, you know, how did you get involved with, Upper Deck, Panini, and Fanatics. You know, those are all three very important companies in the card space and the sports in general. Like, how, how did you stumble into that?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I'd like to say that I planned it all, but it was <laughs> it was just a lot of relationships from one person to, you know, connection from one to another. But there was a lady, when I was working in country music in San Diego, I was helping with all the artists coming in and, and making sure that they were, you know, there for your, their show and had everything they needed before the show. And a, a lady who was an executive at Upper Deck at the time would come down and she was a big country fan. So she kind of would do all the backstage stuff. And she was like, hey, look, if you, if we have this opening working with athletes. Would you like to do that? And I was like, I like country music, but I love sports. So I, I jumped, I jumped at the opportunity, started working there at Upper Deck, working with uh, negotiating the athlete deals amongst the baseball division and some of the football deals and I started to build relationships there, connections. Panini America came into the space. They bought a company called Donruss that was based in Texas. And when they did that, they got the NBA license. At the time, I had just got transferred over to work on the NBA property for Upper Deck. And I was their brand manager, running managing their brand. So within about six, eight months, I, I, I was no longer, they, they didn't need a brand manager for basketball. So luckily the team there at Upper Deck was kind of looking for stuff for me to try and keep me around, which was awesome. I, I was Truly grateful because I was just about to have my first child, so it was really amazing. Then, a the, when the company started up in Panini, you know, the upper deck team said, "Look, man, we were trying. We just don't have anything more for you. We're going to have to, you know, as we're kind of decreasing the team size." The team at Panini reached out and said, "Hey, look, would you come over and run our bas- our baseball division and help us with doing autograph deals there?" Now, luckily, one of the guys I hired at Upper Deck ended up moving to Texas and took on a role there, and he was my connection point to get to that point. A guy by the name of Alex Carbajal, who I'm always indebted to because he kind of started that second part. Him and, and another partner, of mine named Brian Bain, they you know, were at Panini and started to work their way up the ranks uh, there. And so I got to work there for seven years working with those guys as they got the the NBA license, the NFL license. They were working with the Major League Baseball Players Association. They had just gotten NASCAR. So they were starting to really build out their business. And the market was really starting to change. Upper Deck has always been kind of the technological leader. Panini started to come up with some really innovative ideas, design wise, card t- technology wise, and really started to expand that space. I, I kind of ran my course there with those guys. I was ready to do something else. You know, I, I joined a baseball agency, became a baseball agent for a little while, and then then uh, you know, and then I started my own business, the game Use tone business. And when I heard of Fanatics, the, the main reason why fanatics caught my eye is a guy by the name of Josh Luber. Josh Luber started kind of the founded StockX, the sneaker business, which I've always been a fan of sneakers. You know, that's kind of shown throughout my history. But when Josh was had, he wrote a white paper about what he, why he thought trading cards could be cool, right? And and I read it and I reached, I used all my contacts and I reached Josh and I said, Josh, I don't know what you're doing over there, man. I just want to be a part of it. Like, let me, let me be a part of it. I've got all this experience. I feel like I can add a lot of value to it. We talked a little bit. He connected me with their team. And he was like, hey man, he's like, we're in the process of doing a lot of big things with trading cards. They had they had made the announcement that they were getting the licenses. The 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 previous licenses, just to touch on that point, was always a royalty payment. You had a licensing right, right? You had the licensing deal for the licensor. A lot of times it was exclusive. Sometimes it was, you know, there was multiple exclusives. And then you would do a royalty to them. So a lot of these companies, they were making good money, you know, but they were making on average. 15, 20%, somewhere in that ballpark of what the manufacturer was making. The Fanatics deal was so brilliant. And and again, I go back to Josh Luber and the team, Michael Rubin, the guys to come up with this, this concept. But they said, hey, look, what if we, instead of paying them a royalty, what if we just include them in the business so we all win together, right? And so you have multiple sides of doing those deals. You have the properties, which are the leagues. And then you have the player association, which handle all the athletes. So, you know, those are to make sure that everybody has their needs taken care of in this partnership of doing professional sports. So to bring them into the fold and I, you know, again, I don't know, I don't know how much of that's public knowledge of what their splits are. And so I won't discuss it, but, but to bring them into the partnership and to say, Hey, look, we're all partners in this was such a brilliant move. And I'm so surprised, you know, obviously when you look back, it's, it's, you know, you, you it doesn't make sense why that never happened prior, but looking at it, it was brilliant. It was such a brilliant move. You know, un- Unfortunately, you know, in 2026, they will have full license for the full exclusive license for NBA, NFL, and MLB, which means that companies like you know, Panini won't have those licenses as an exclusive. There's a lot of other things they can do, but they won't have those exclusive rights. But that was really a brilliant move. So when I joined their team, I just wanted to see what they were doing. I worked for them for a year, really enjoyed what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're doing some amazing things. I really love how they're bringing all these different facets of sports and the, the commercialization of it under one umbrella. The, the distribution and the reach that Fanatics has is, I don't know if there's any company. I mean, very, very few companies have the type of reach they have. So they have a lot of upside, a lot of potential for what they're doing. I'm really excited to see what they, what they do. But I think for me, I was just ready to do something else. I, I, you know, I get that bug every once in a while. I was ready to do something else. But yeah, uh, amazing to see what, what Michael Rubin and, and Mike Mahan and their team are really building out. A, a few of my you know, really good friends have joined their team and continue to kind of build the trajectory out, which has been amazing to kind of see how it plays out.
0: Well, I, I'd love to know your take on, how these different companies then play roles moving forward. Because let's say Upper Deck and Panini, particularly Panini, they had, you know, one of their biggest advantages with the licenses kind of taken away, or at least officially in 2026, similar to Topps, which has then been acquired by Fanatics. I guess if you play out what each of these companies should be doing, I know it's like kind of a, a conjecture, hypothetical there, but do you see that like, because tops got acquired by Fanatics, and I don't, I don't want to ask, like, your opinion on, like, hypothetical M&A you'd be doing if you're, like, Michael Rubin, but just, like, thinking about how does the role change of what Panini and Upper Deck offers moving forward, and then how does that, what does Fanatics offer moving forward? Because also, I think it was last week, they announced they're now the official, is it the jersey provider of the NHL, right? So,
1: like, Fanatics, obviously... Yeah, on-ice on, yeah. on, on ice provider of jerseys. Exactly,
0: right? So uh-huh. So I think to myself, like, if if you think about these card companies like Panini and Top, well, Topstone by Fnatic, Panini and Upper Deck, how does their role change moving forward considering all this new change? And then how does Fanatics' role moving forward change as well? Kind of open ended questions. I'm just curious because you obviously are deep in that, you know?
1: Yeah, man. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of things, right? I think so there's a company called Leaf who does a lot of trading cards and they have always done a great job, but it's owned by a guy by the name of Brian Gray they have always done a great job of adapting within the space without having exclusives, right? So to my knowledge, Leaf has never had an exclusive or even a partnership to be able to do official anything trading cards. But now with the growth of NIL and the excitement of athletes starting out in high school, early high school and college, you know, there's a lot of areas that I think can be done to still be able to make trading cards. And I, and I truthfully think you know, I'm, always, I'm a fan of, I, and I've been a fan since day one. When I was a kid, you know, there was 12 different companies that had, you know, part of the rights to be able to make baseball cards or whatever, right? I, I personally think it should be multiple companies, but I don't think Fanatics is going to give that up anytime soon when they do have the rights. But I, I think there's a lot of ways for these companies, card companies, to still manufacture cards, do partnerships, do one-off partnerships with an individual where they can tell kind of a historic collection of, you know, all of their 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 career accolades again it doesn't have to show league marks or anything like that so they can do an individual deal with these athletes you know i mean really a lot of these companies could go do exclusives like panini could potentially you know and i hopefully you know whether this is stuff they're thinking about or not you know hopefully i'm not ruining anything for them but they could go do exclusives with 10 players in the nba and Really cause conflict for fanatics, right? If they go out and get the next 10 best players, you know, for example, there's a, there's the number one overall client or the athlete that they think will be in the draft, a kid out of France named Victor Wenben Yanya. Forgive me, I butchered the heck out of that. But he's, he, they could, poten- Panini could potentially go get him an exclusive for five years, 10 years, right? And they could make cards of him that couldn't be done in fanatics cards, right? We've seen that happen in the past. That's not a, a a mind blowing idea. Upper deck has Michael Jordan and LeBron James. They don't do autograph deals in any Panini you know, they've had, I don't, you know, I don't know how much they have of them now, but they've had them in the past. And so they couldn't do autograph cards in Panini's NBA exclusive, you know, official product, right? So, there, there's always those elements. There's always things like that the, these card companies can do. What we have to get, though, is we would have to get to the point where the consumers are looking at those cards as an equal value to what's happening with, you know, what a Fanatics ends up doing, right? So again, I think there are lots of different ways to keep these card companies going. I think Leaf has done a great job of showing how that's possible. Leaf has done, you know, they're again, they're not Leaf is not at the level of upper deck or not at the level of tops or, 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 you know, Panini, but they still create a great business where a lot of fans love their stuff. They get access to a lot of athlete autograph deals where they can do these great card products. To me, it seems like it's just, you have to be more creative. You know, you're going to have to be a little more creative. You have to come up with what works best. And there's still a lot of professional leagues out there that have value, you know, Topps, when Topps didn't have the basketball license before this Fanatics acquisition, they did a partnership with the overtime elite, the, the professional sports league out of Atlanta that was getting a lot of young talent in basketball. They were able to create some phenomenal basketball product of this, you know, kind of rising, rising league that now has a lot of interest because two of their players this year will be top 10 draft picks in the NBA. So the first autograph cards will actually come from Topps's product that isn't even college or or you know or professional product. So again, I think that there's ways to go about that with we're seeing like the growth of the NWSL and soccer for women's soccer like they just had the number 1 overall pick, Alyssa Thompson, who's a phenomenal superstar out of California that, you know, I think again will be able to grow that that market, show those amazing athletes, and if the collectors base is there, all of these areas can grow. And again, Fanatics could go and try to acquire all these leagues, but they may not need to, they may say, Hey, look, you know, upper deck, you guys can have NWSL, you know, Panini, you guys can have overtime elite if they choose to, you know, change their partnership in the future. But there's a lot of opportunities for all these card companies to stay around.
0: No, I, I think at a, a macro level, one big opportunity going back to what the white paper, Josh Luber wrote, you know, trading cards are cool again, is the expansion of cards in general, because, he, I mean, in that white paper, he compares it to the sneaker industry, where like if you look at kind of I mean, you your Stephen saying this earlier, like being a sneakerhead twenty years ago, it was still a thing, but not as much of a thing now. And StockX, whether it was the cause or partially the, the recipient of the wave, sne- sneakerhead, sneakerheads, sneaker culture, sneaker reselling just became bigger and bigger to the point where you know it's, the secondary sneaker market is, is growing a lot and it's continuing to grow and that's one of the things josh referenced in the white paper it's like what can we take learnings from sneakers into cards and it's it's funny i was i was recently on another podcast interviewing brent brent higgins from pwcc and he was saying that he thinks that cards are an even better opportunity than sneakers because a variety of reasons like the ability to like hold on to it for longer you know and and just small things like that there's a big a lot, a lot of things you could say around that but if you think about that fundamental premise or prompt, like will trading cards grow as a percentage of like cultural mind share in the US and globally? If they will, how will they grow? Because some of the things Josh mentioned are like influence, for example. Like there's no, there's no Travis Scott, Virgil Abloh, or Kanye for cards right now. And it's not not that you need to find that, but that's one of the sort of like thought experiments there. How how do you think trading cards will become cooler? How do you think it, the the broader industry will grow? What are the growth areas? What isn't happening now that you think will start happening to make it as big, theoretically, as as sneakers or maybe more? Like, what's your overall take on that that just, like, topic?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, you know, when I joined Josh Luber's team at at Fanatics, we were looking to grow out the entertainment space. That's, a, that's an area I think is completely undertapped, right? I mean, you know, you talk about the celebrity aspects of it, you know, when, like, Drake is sitting there with Ken Golden opening up boxes, right? Now, I think, again, knowing the business of this sports is that it was a mutually beneficial partnership. Ken Golden got to you know see and, and the collectors community got to see that Drake is interested in this stuff. But Drake also got to tap into a massive market of fans that have always felt that they're not quote-unquote cool that then adds cool factor to them, right? Now, I guarantee you that when Drake did that, the collector community – picked up being Drake fans, whether they were or weren't prior, they became Drake fans because they appreciated that somebody of his stature and his, of his reach was coming into our community to talk about it. Right. That there's that, that I think is an undertapped market. the, 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 celebrity entertainment aspect of whether it's, you know, actors, singers, artists They're you know, the tops is doing a really cool, they've done a project 2020. They did a project 100 where they're working with you know, artists, a uh, cultural artists that are building cards to make art in cards, right? So I think, I think you're seeing kind of the start of that. I just think there's so many more ways it can go. You know, Upper Deck has done a phenomenal job with the Marvel franchise. Topps has done a great job with Star Wars. But they've only just kind of scratched the surface. I think there's a couple things. One I'll say is the distribution is key. You've got to be able to get to these far-reaching areas of the world, right? You know, the U.S. has always been an easy market to pick up trading cards. It's much harder in different parts of the world. I think Fanatics is really going to help with that, building out that reach. I also think that you have to expand upon what trading cards are, right? It's not just sports. You can do entertainment. You can do, you can do again, art cards. You could do so many different elements of what trading cards could be and hasn't been yet that I really think those are areas that these companies will all tap into as you know, again for like Panini, as these some of these sports properties may go away, they're going to look at some other opportunities to grow and develop in. And that's really what happened with Upper Deck. Upper Deck, when they lost some of the, when the sports licenses moved to some of these other companies, they were like, "We got to expand on our entertainment space." And so they built out some of these other inroads in the entertainment space. And that's why Marvel, you know, started to take off. So again, I, I think that there's a lot of growth opportunities for those areas. And I, and I, I do I think the digital aspect has been kind of felt around a little bit around our area. It just hasn't fully been engulfed by the fan base. And I think there's a few different areas for that. I think it's the lack of investment in those spaces is one thing. I also think that it's a, you know, how can you connect it to an athlete? I you mean, know, they have like autograph NFT cards, but again, they're not physically, they're not really autographed. So it's just an autograph facsimile. How do you connect that to the athlete? How can you make it where that, that athlete actually looked at that card or did something to actually autograph that card I think that would raise the the digital cards fan base. And again, I just I just think there's areas that needs to continue to grow and expand that. The really really cool thing about it I'll say is that the people that are investing in this space are people that have come from the outside in other industries. You know, I look at like Nat Turner and stuff with what he's doing with the Collectors Group, he is bringing his outside experience, some of his connections in the outside into this trading card space and I really do think that with these individuals that are all around this space, it'll continue to grow. And these, these ideas will build out a lot faster than what they've done in the past.
0: Well, Tone, one of the things I want to ask you about as well is, I mean, I didn't know about the country music in San Diego thing. That's another very cool thing you've done, Like, you seem to have lived a pretty cool, interesting life across like music, sports, memorabilia, sneakers. Uh, and clearly that experience has led you to having a really deep, like multifaceted understanding of these like overlapping industries, but before I ask you some sort of like, you know, Tone's thoughts on some of the stuff happening right now, like looking into the future, let's talk about like, like young Tone, you know, like, is there an element of you that has always like, I, I'm assuming, you know, obviously you, you were a fan of sports, probably and, and music when you're younger. Like, do you look back on any sort of things that you did when you were younger or stories or just hobbies in general as motivating you or kind of serendipitously leading to you to where you are right now?
1: No question, man. I think you know, I think it it's I definitely have been on a dream journey, right? Like I I, you know, I, I don't take that for granted. I'm very, very grateful, you know, and it's and it's been one person helping me get to the next level to another person. I mean, it's been all people, right? That have just built this network. And I, I think that, you know, I have this statement on my LinkedIn that I'm I'm just always trying to impress my 12 year old self. You know what I mean? Like I want my 12 year old self to look at it and be like, that's a cool dude, you know, because the reality is. Other people may really love what I do. Other people may think it's boring. Like, it, you know, you're, who are you really trying to impress? And so I always think that, like, if my 12-year-old self is going, like, that's really cool. You know, you got to meet Michael Jordan, your all-time hero, and Ryan Sandberg. Like, that's really cool. You know, like, so those elements. But, yeah, man, I'll tell you, man, the sneakers started when I was about 11 years old. My grandma bought me a pair of Jordans that I wanted forever. They were Jordan fives. And when I got these fives, I'm with the reflective tongue, the black with the reflective tongue all of a sudden it changed the cool factor for me. You know, like I was, I was a, a you know, a decent, you know, people, I, th- I think I was a liked kid. I, I like to think so. But all of a sudden having those sneakers was like, oh dude, that dude has got to be super cool because he has the coolest sneakers in the school. And I think any, you know, most people have a story like that when it comes to sneakers, right? The first time somebody, even if you're a, you know, a grown man, the first time somebody looks at your shoes and kind of gives you the head nod and like, dude, we're legit. Like those are good kicks. I think those type of things connect you to moments. I didn't think about it at the time. I just thought they were really cool looking, and I was just a fan of Michael Jordan. So it just kind of, when it came together, it was something that I thought, "Oh wow!" Like that, the sneakers changed the perspective of who I was. It changed the the image, what people thought of me. They knew me, and knew, you know, maybe grew up with them or whatever. But as soon as I had those shoes on, it was a different image. It was a, it was like a, you know, another another. I had I, I like, you know, uh, increased in, in my image, my image value. So I think that things like that, you know, put me in connection with sneakers. Same thing with cards. I remember, you know, trading cards when I was young, eight, nine years old, trading with my friends, trying to get a Jose Canseco rookie card for whatever reason. You know, I mean, I'm still, I've, met, I've been able to meet Jose and got to know him. He's a phenomenal individual, very interesting individual. But again, those, those are the things you were chasing, you know, the Ken Griffey junior rookie card. These were elements that like all of a sudden made an emotional connection to things. A buddy of mine tells his story and I honestly don't remember it, but he remembers when we were kids and I was like, I'm going to work for a trading card company someday. I was like, I wish you would have recorded that because it would have been cool to kind of, you know, prophesize that. But he remembers me saying that. And so again, working at the three major trading card companies, I mean, it was, it's, it's been something that again, has just kind of this path has worked its way through and it's worked out because of networking and relationships and and you know and then over time you get a knowledge of this space and then you know and I, I don't know what you know some of these billionaires I'm not a billionaire so i don't know how these billionaires work but i assume what happens is you get connected enough to situations you you don't predict the future but you kind of see how it's coming together because you know enough about these industries and how they merge and i feel like that's where i am not at the billionaire status but at that status to understand like you're starting to see how these worlds align and connect and where they can grow together because you know enough about each side of these industries. And that's all I've ever tried to do is just to try to continue to grow as a person, learn more, be, you know, I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly trying to give myself in front of people who can add additional, you know, help to me to help me grow. And I do the same for, for young, for young individuals that are like trying to get into sports. I, I talk with, individuals all the time, trying to help them to go, Hey, what, how do you want to get into sports? What do you want to do? Everybody wants to, you know, be a GM of the Yankees. I get it. There's only one of those gigs, but, but I'm always trying to help guide people into those areas because I do feel that that was been done. That has always been done for me. And I owe that to this next group so they can, you know, have some of these cool experiences as well.
0: Tony, you know that I have like a hundred questions I could keep asking you in a hundred different topics that, I'd love to, but, you know, kind of mindful of time here, I guess. Maybe one question before we start, like to close up. Out of everything we've discussed, or maybe something that we haven't discussed yet, like one of the things I really like what you just said is that kind of seeing things come together. And that could be like maybe specific things, like specific new technologies or products, or maybe like macro level trends of, I don't know, certain demographics, markets, etc. Out of everything you've discussed, or if we haven't discussed already, what's like an exciting trend that you're following that you think will be one of those things that comes together in the next few years. That will be super consequential on everything from sneakers to cards to sports in general that you just get really hyped about.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I I get go back to, I think it's, it has something to do with this digital world. You know, I, I can tell you what I think. I think that we were talking about it offline is the idea of bringing this, these, physical elements into the digital world, being able to, you know, people want to gamify them and put them into Fortnite and some of these other games. I think that would be awesome. I think there's other ways that we can continue to kind of grow this. You know, I love the, the thing. I, the thing, you know, I love people's collections when I see people's collections of whatever they collect, you know, most of the time it's sports memorabilia or cards or stuff just cause that's the world I'm in. But I love when people can show to somebody who understands how passionate they are about it and appreciates that and they can show off their collection. So I think the idea of being able to digitize some of these physical elements, the idea to be able to bring it up on your phone in a 3D model and zoom in on it and see the cool details of that specific item, and for people to be able to show their collections without having to take you to their warehouse in you know, Venezuela or wherever they're at, I think those opportunities are really, really exciting to me. I, lo- I love the vault ideas that are happening. I think there's so much upside of that. Because a lot of collectors don't know how best to care for their collectibles. And truthfully, they don't want to. They don't want to have the insurance over their head that they have a $10 million dollar item in their house, right? So I think there's there's a world where those vaulting elements become digital collectibles, become tradable assets. I, you know I love what a lot of these companies are doing with fractionalization. I think there's a lot of elements of that. you know we talked about the, the guys you know over at rares, you know their team over at rares. Like there are elements of that that is, everybody is like building these pieces. Eventually, those are all going to connect together, man. Like a like a Megatron, man. Like the ultimate, you know. Like come together, and I think those will be some really really cool elements that that will really take collectibles to another journey. That people can again have their emotional connection to these pieces, have ownership in some of this rare stuff. I mean, again, the cool the cool thing about fractionalization, I think that people don't fully grasp is. You may not have ten million dollars to buy a special item, but for twenty bucks or fifty dollars or hundred dollars, and, and and I'm saying this, I am not connected in any way to any fractionalization company, but I really love the idea of what they're doing because I think that it allows people to have that story and be a part owner, you know, of a of a of a major piece of history and whatever their emotional connection is. That's that to me is what collectability collectible having collections is all about. Right? Is that you want to be able to have a connection to your favorite athlete, team, moment, whatever, and really build out you know, your ties to it. You know? And then when you get to a point where you can do that financially and you have a little bit more disposable income, you know, it makes sense to be able to do larger pieces and get bigger collections. But I really think there is, that will happen very, very soon where that, this merge of this digital space, these physical elements, again, with these athlete connections, like I really feel that's going to be a very big monster in the next large jump in collections.
0: Well, Tone, it's been fantastic speaking with you. I'm going to close off with the same last two questions. First being, you know, where can people find you, your business on social media, website, et cetera? And the second question being, which maybe you kind of covered, but I'll leave the floor to you. Like what's one last message you'd like to leave with the audience?
1: Yeah, so I mean, again, I'm, you know, I'm Tone at Game Tone, please feel free to email me. I love talking about this stuff. I will always get back to you. May take a little time, but I will get back to you. I love being connected on LinkedIn because I think LinkedIn does a great job of showing you all the additional connections you're built out to. So I love to connect with anybody on LinkedIn, just under tone stakes. And the last thing I would say is just like, you know, I think I hope people will, you know, obviously I know your your database of people that are listeners are going to know this space already, but I hope you'll dig into the collectible space, especially the game use space and really look at it and see if it's something that's there for you, you know, because I think that this market is continuing to grow, continuing to merge. I think it's a phenomenal additional asset. I know they call it an alternate asset class, but I, I think it's a, a another way for people to have an emotional connection to something that can bring them great stories and experiences, as well as be an investment. Which I really think are the best investments. You know, it's great to invest in companies like Yahoo or I mean Yahoo, Google, and you know, and eBay and what, Nike, whoever. But I think that you know, you don't always have that connection to them. I think these moments, especially if you're a sports fan, I mean, you know, I, I talk about it all the time. There's, there's an iconic piece that I'm so excited to see eventually come to the public world at some point. That's the sneakers that were given to Michael Jordan from Nike to try to convince him to join Nike. And they call them the Jordan Zeros. They call them, you know, there's a, there's a thousand different terms for them. But those are the type of pieces that have moved culture, that have moved the history of sports. You know, not just because Michael Jordan wore them, not just because sneakers became a cultural element, not just because of that, because of so many other elements that those ideas ripple affected and changed. To me, you know, moments like that, items like that, are are, are things that I think people could be a part owner of, or even potentially own themselves outright. That could really be, you know, a cool piece to build this collection story, the collectible story in this industry. I think a lot of times. There's so many moments, There's so many iconic pieces like that that are stored away in somebody's warehouse somewhere that the world needs to see. You know, it'd be cool someday. You know, hopefully someday somebody builds a whole museum about some of these really cool items that are these rare. You know, not the Hall of Fames are phenomenal and stuff, but I mean like these are items that have transcended history and transcended culture. It'd be really really cool to see a museum of that someday. And so, I'm you know I'm optimistic. Hopefully we'll come through and we'll see that maybe we can build it together. So, I'm in. How can it happen? It.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much, Tone. Really appreciate you taking the time, and it's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the New Street X podcast. You can learn more about the guest in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Please make sure to like, follow, subscribe across YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and more. Thank you so much. See you next time.